What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Google is gearing up for its first battles in a London court over the so-called right to be forgotten. Two cases will test the boundaries between personal privacy and the public interest. The anonymous plaintiffs describe themselves in court filings as businessmen and want the search engine to take down links to information about their old convictions, one for conspiracy to account falsely and the other for conspiracy to intercept communications. Google says it will defend the public's right to access lawful information. My guest is Craig Newman, chair of the Privacy and Data Security Group at Patterson, Belknap, Webb, and Tyler. Craig, the EU's highest court established the right to be forgotten in a precedent-setting ruling in May 2014. What is it exactly? June, what the European Court of Justice said was that if you're an EU resident and if there's something out there on the Internet that, and this is the words of the court, that's either inadequate, irrelevant, or excessive, an EU resident has the right to ask Google to take that link out of its search engine results. Now, the judge in these cases has said the plaintiffs are not celebrities or politicians and have been rehabilitated since their convictions. And the cases are separate, but the issues are related. What are the plaintiffs' claims here? Plaintiff's claims are that they both have criminal records, about a decade old in each case. And what they've said is that these, these records are just too old to be relevant anymore, and they shouldn't be subject to search results. I mean, the fallacy in the argument is that there really is no right to be forgotten, because what they're simply asking for is the search engines to remove the results. The original source data, whether it's in a newspaper or government website or news website, it's still going to remain out there in the Internet. They're simply trying to get the search engines to delete those results when someone puts in their name. When you say there is no right to be forgotten, where does that put the EU, the EU's highest court's decision that there is such a right? Well, that, that's why it's such a fallacy, because what, what essentially the EU court is saying is that if you use an example of walking into the New York City Public Library, um, if you can find a book on the shelf by your own effort, that's fine. But the EU court basically said, look, you can't ask the librarian, you can't look in a card catalog or an index which is essentially the search engine. But if you can find it on your own by going to a news website, you can do that. So that, that's why it's almost a counterintuitive ruling, because the data still remains out there in the digital ether. It's just a question of how to find it. So a Google spokeswoman said, we work hard to comply with the right to be forgotten, but we take great care not to remove search results that are clearly in the public interest. 
What's Google's position about these old convictions? Well, I think the statistics are probably where we should start, June. It's interesting. In the about three and a half years since the high court ruling, Google's received about two million requests to delete links for information. And of those two million requests, they've granted about 43% of them. That's over 875,000 links that have been taken down. And they've denied about, 60, about 56 percent of those requests. So a fair number of those requests are, are being granted. Really, the real question for Google is applying a very ambiguous legal standard to different sets of facts, because ultimately that's a judgment call. And it begs a bigger question, you know, are search engines really well-suited to make these sorts of judgment calls? Are regulators, are courts? So what, what is Google saying in, in response? Well, Google's view is that if these individuals are allowed to have their private inf- their information that they believe is now outdated or embarrassing taken off search engine results, that it actually creates somewhat of a misleading impression. Because if, if you plug someone's name into a Google search engine in the EU and you find no results, you're going to – the only inference is that – there's no information out there. So you take an example of, say, a doctor, and you've got an EU resident doing some diligence on whether or not they want to go to a particular doctor. That person has had some nefarious contact with the law in the past. I'd certainly want to know about it. And under this court ruling, that doctor would have the right to petition Google and eventually the local data authorities to take that information down. So this is the first time an English court is going to decide this issue of the right to be forgotten. But tell us about Google's battles in European courts and with privacy regulators over the principle. Just briefly. Sure. The the bigger issue and I think the bigger fight is being fought in France because there Google is fighting with the French data protection authorities. And this ultimately is a question that will be before the European Court of Justice later this year as to how broad this right to be forgotten goes. Google's position now is that they're trying to confine these rulings to each individual country. But France's view is there should be a global right to be forgotten. So if an EU resident makes a request to delete their name or their search results from an engine, the French government wants that to be applied globally. And that, I think, is that a is much a stretch. bigger fight that's going on. Now, George Brock, a journalism professor at City University of London, said Google has been opaque about its approach to making these decisions about taking things down that are uh, supposedly connected to the right to be forgotten. Are there any standards that are obvious? Because here you have um, a case where the English law is designed to rehabilitate offenders by putting these things in the background. It's actually a clash of privacy cultures. Because in Europe, and there's a Yale Law professor who's written quite a bit about that, the right of privacy is rooted in this the sense of personal honor and wanting to have standing in your community. And any embarrassing search results, even if they're absolutely true, can undermine this, this cultural norm. Now, obviously, in the United States, we take a polar opposite view of privacy with our free speech rights and freedom of the press. 
So you really are view, viewing this through the lens of two different continents with, with startling different privacy norms. Just briefly, in about 30 seconds, the trial, one trial will start on February 27th, the second on March 13th. So that does that mean the judge is going to be considering the actual facts in his determination of each person's case? It's not just the broad issue. Right. So in each of the two separate trials, June, the judge is going to have to apply this this opaque legal standard from the European Court of Justice and decide in each case, which involves separate businessmen, whether those links are inadequate, irrelevant, or excessive. And what a judge in, in the U.K. might decide, interestingly, could differ from what a judge in another EU country might decide. So ultimately, it's a judgment judgment call that the courts are now going to have to make. All right. Thank you for being here, Craig. That's Craig Newman, a partner, partner at Patterson Belknap. Last quarter, the former director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Richard Cordray, requested $217.1 million in operating funds from the Federal Reserve. In his January 17th letter to Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen, the acting director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Nick Mullaney, writes, This letter is to inform you that for second quarter of fiscal year 2018, the Bureau is requesting $0. This, let's call it non-request, is unprecedented in the history of the Consumer Watchdog Agency. Mulvaney also said that all the Bureau's activities are being put under review. Former Massachusetts Attorney General Martha Coakley said because of this shift, many state attorneys general are jumping in to fill the gap, even looking at former staffers from the CFPB to come into their offices. I think the CFPB is going to cut way back. I think you've already seen certain state AGs recognize that they may try to take on some of the efforts to protect consumers under the statutory scheme. AGs have the authority to bring certain suits on behalf of their states and on consumers. Coakley says New Pennsylvania AG has put in a division modeled on the CFPB. Joining me is Dalia Jimenez, professor at the University of Connecticut School of Law and founding staff member of the CFPB. Dalia, Mulvaney writes that no additional funds are necessary to carry out the authorities of the Bureau because the agency has $177.1 million in reserve, and he intends to spend down the reserve with expenses of about $145 million. Does that sound reasonable? Well, I mean, it sounds reasonable in the sense that this is what he wants to do, to to basically um, uh, have the Bureau do a lot less. And um, uh, and so if you're doing a lot less, it better be a lot cheaper. Um, so it's just, it's, it's really signaling, um, you know, not that we need any more um, signals, really, but it's just a further um, example of um, how much he wants to basically neuter uh, the, the agency. The day before this, the CFPB announced that it was dropping a lawsuit against a group of online payday lenders, and that that suit shook the industry when it was filed last year. It gave no reasons for dropping the lawsuit. Can you make an educated guess as to why? Um, well, on the law, not really. It, it was, um, you know, assuming their allegations are correct, it was a pretty strong case, I thought. Um, and so that's why it kind of shook the industry, because that um, basically the, the, the lawsuit was uh, 
against um, companies that had used uh, American Indian tribes as, um, you know, for lack of a better term, a front um, for um, for their activities and alleging basically that because um, they were doing their work uh, in American Indian territory, they weren't subject to state regulation, and so they could charge um, usurious interest rates and, um, and, and operate without licenses in those states in which they were operating. And so that, you know, if they could do that, that's um, great for them, but I think the Bureau had a very good case that that um, was not uh, you know, that wasn't legal in this particular um, case, based on their allegations. So why are they dropping it? Well, it, it goes right in hand with um, their other notice um, recently that they're going to revisit the payday lending rules that the bureau had just uh, proposed um, just before Mulvaney uh, became, you know, the acting director. So Mulvaney is putting the entire operation of the CFPB under review. Besides the payday loans, what areas is he targeting for change or even repeal? Um, it seems like everything is up for grabs. Um, the other uh, recent thing has been he put a hold on uh, prepa- prepaid card uh, rules that were actually finalized in 2016, and the Bureau had put a hold on them to basically tweak them and get more comments from the industry. Um, and they seemed like they were they were going to um, be uh, effective in April of this year, um, and they would have protected the consumers for very basic things. So things like if you lost, lose or have um, your card stolen, um, you know, there would be some protections for you, which aren't there now. Uh, they, you know, requiring providers to uh, make the accounts easily accessible and to basically have better account error and, and um, resolution uh, procedures. I mean, that's like that's the stuff you have if you don't have a prepaid card, if you have a debit card or a credit card. Um, so in a way, um, the, the consumers who have these uh, prepaid cards tend to be people who do not have regular bank accounts. Um, and, you know, they're using them as bank accounts. So they're scrapping these rules, which are just, um, you know, really um, affecting the most vulnerable among us. Um uh, and the debt collection rules, or not rules, um, they also were doing a debt collection uh, information gathering, and basically he scrapped that, too. So um, he this changed, is just another recent one. He changed the CFPB's mission statement last month, and part of the change was adding, helping consumer finance markets work by regularly identifying and addressing outdated, unnecessary, or unduly burdensome rules. How long, yeah. how long, I mean, he, he's, let's say he's going to be in there at least three years. It, it would take a long time to undo the regulations that are in place now. What did I mean? It has to be public comment period, et cetera, or is it easier than that? Well, I mean, I think you can do a lot, uh, you know, before, um, you can do a lot in a short period of time. He's doing it already. Like, so one of the things he's done is basically to, um, at least, I don't think it's finalized yet, but he wants to basically shut down a lot of the um, information gathering that the Bureau is doing um, in various ways. And so it's basically the the idea that, you know, we're going to regulate by uh, closing our eyes, covering our ears, and pretending uh, that nothing's happening to avoid learning uh, bad things and people that we should, um, that we should sue or we should examine because they're violating the law. Um, so if you do, you know, if you do that and you basically choose not to bring um, cases that may be meritorious or, or perhaps not even to investigate them, you don't really need to change all the rules. Um, you know, you're basically affecting uh, affecting both the morale and the personnel that you get um, in agency um, and the institutional history. And you're also affecting how the marketplace reacts um, because then they think, you know, we can get away with more because the, the um, bureaus not interested in basically uh, checking up on us, which is their entire purpose. 
Um, what he did with the changing of the uh, mission statement, it really is just another uh, signaling to the agency, to consumers, um, that, uh, you know, this is not Dalia, no I'm, I'm going to have to mm-hmm. s- stop you there. We'll, we'll pick this up some other time. That's Dalia Jimenez, professor at the University of Connecticut School of Law. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.